Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have a rather unusual guest. Following a sudden non-dual experience one morning in February 2016, Jessica Corneille decided to change the course of her life by quitting her career in the arts and cultural heritage preservation to play her part instead in helping to destigmatize, depathologize, and raise awareness around spiritual awakening, enlightenment, and non-dual experiences within mainstream psychology. She graduated with distinction from a master's degree in psychology from the University of Greenwich, where she focused her studies on exceptional human experiences, including transpersonal, anomalistic, and parapsychology, and she is now a qualified research psychologist focusing predominantly on awakening experiences of a spontaneous nature. Jessica has presented her work at a number of academic conferences, including with the British Psychological Society, and she is the communications coordinator for the Scientific and Medical Network. She is also a collaborator of the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium and Spiritual Crisis Network, and runs support groups for people undergoing spiritually transformative experiences. With a desire to challenge the default pathologization of awakening experiences, Jessica's research aims to inform and encourage mainstream psychology to look beyond the current designated spectrum of normality to encompass the transpersonal as something that is intrinsic to the human experience and in helping individuals come to the realization of their highest human potential. Jessica, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Natalie. It's great to be here. So we have a friend in common, Sam Gandhi, who is singing your praises. And um, I know Sam, of course, because of his research on nature connectedness. And it was really interesting to hear what your work is exploring, spontaneously arising, non-dual experiences. Maybe we can start there. What is a non-dual experience or a spontaneous non-dual experience? How do you describe that? Yeah, so um, a spontaneous spiritual awakening or non-dual experience is typically characterized by a sudden and non-intentional experience of oneness or of connection uh, with a perceived ultimate reality, the universe or cosmic consciousness, Mm. God or the divine. Yeah, so that's the, the, the common thread that runs through many of these types of experiences. And then each individual's experience will be slightly different. But yeah, that's the golden thread, or, or so to speak, um, through which all experiences are connected. And it's not something that you sort of hear about very often, because I think often we hear about altered states through various practices. So whether it's engaging in dancing, trancing, uh, not eating or drinking, you know, fasting practices, plant-based practices. Uh, what is it that's so unusual about spontaneous experiences and why are they so little documented in the wider world? Mm. 
I mean, they are documented, but they're mostly documented in, in Eastern esoteric texts or in yogic texts um, or in indig- indigenous uh, sort of cultural, I don't want to say artifacts, but, you know, in, in artworks or in, in storytelling. So they are documented around the world. It's it's mostly in the West that we don't tend to discuss these experiences. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that, but... We haven't really gotten to the bottom of why that is. I suppose that uh, these kinds of experiences are typically pathologized, i.e. they are often associated with mental health disorder in the West. So according to the modern psychiatric system, um, these experiences by default seem to be sort of related to, to disorders. And I think that has sort of put a halt on the way that we look at these experiences or indulge in their research, I guess, because there's already this bias towards the pathologization of the experience. Mm. And so it kind of it kind of halts the conversation around those experiences as well. And so I want to come back to that and dive into it because I think that whole conversation around how we conceive of the self or selves and how we conceive of well-being and how we pathologize certain non-normative expressions of <laughs> Of consciousness, that's that's a whole topic that I'd really like to spend some time on. But before we get to that, I want to start a bit with your story. So what motivated you to pursue this this path? Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, around six years ago, I, um, I had just moved to Madrid. Um, so I was living a, a very exciting new life in Madrid uh, with a new job, new friends. And I had considered myself to be an absolute atheist up until that point. Um, and that point was uh, the morning after a, a very profound lucid dream. So the yeah, so when I woke up from a, a very intense lucid dream, that's when I had the experience. So it's very difficult to put these experiences into words because by their very nature, they are ineffable, i.e. there are no words to describe them. And they're also deeply noetic. So they're fully embodied experiences of oneness and of connection but basically I woke up um, in the morning and I looked around my room and I had this overwhelming sense of connection to everything and everyone in the universe uh, an experience of yeah profound oneness with eternity Um, I had a clear sense that everything around me was alive even the walls around me felt like they were gleaming with like a new life energy which is what I later came to know as uh, the Brahman, which is uh, a term that is often used in in, in Hinduism and in, in Buddhism as well. Um, so the sense of aliveness. I had this clear sense of there being multiple levels or layers of consciousness um, that one could access and that we were typically blinded to the multidimensionality of this life by living in one specific type way when actually there was a a plethora of different ways of existence and again all of this was sort of a deeply embodied feeling within me it was almost vibrational and cellular uh, rather than a conceptual or a thought idea so I woke up with this feeling really profound feeling a deep inner knowing more than a feeling actually and I had this immense sense of gratitude and of love it's a love that I've never experienced for anyone or anything before It was like a a new dimension of love. And just to reiterate, it wasn't a it wasn't a dogmatic sense of God, but it was a sense that all is God and that I am part of God and that you're part of God and everything is just as godly as each other. But um, it was that waking up to the divinity of this life and of each individual. And there's so much more I could 
talk about recording my experience but um in a nutshell that's basically what I those were the realizations that I that I had to come to terms with with time and that I experienced in that moment and actually when you describe it for me at least it conjures this very blissful experience of connection mm-hmm. I remember and this is this is something that I sometimes go back to there was um as a metaphor more than anything else I don't know if you do you ever watch Star Trek you're kind of no <laughs> okay I kind of died in the world Star Trek fan I was raised on it and there's this um there was this one episode that I watched years ago I think it's a Deep Space Nine episode and there's this character called Odo and Odo is this alien from the species that are able to take individuated physical form mm-hmm. but they are in their resting state or in their selected state, they are actually all one. So they're an organism which kind of, when they, they become a sea of this species, it's a really powerful image. And I remember watching this years ago and it really stuck with me, this sense of merging with something much greater and there being an expansiveness and a connection and a sense of almost relief. Yes. And so one of the things that I think people might not necessarily ask, because if it sounds like such a blissful experience, it's, what happens next? How do you come to terms with, actually use that language, how do you come to terms with integrating or understanding or making sense in some way of this embodied experience, especially when it kind of does resist um, verbal description? And then how did that influence how you then conceived of how you were living? You know, what do I do with my life? What does this mean for how I've been thinking about the world so far? I mean, pick any of that, because it's a big question. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, everyone's path looks slightly different. But for me, so I had this incredibly blissful, as you mentioned, experience and this feeling of immense peace and of understanding. and, and, And it almost felt like I was being transported towards the next part part of my life. So it felt really effortless for me. So um, I know for, for many people, it's not as effortless, but for me, it was quite effortless. And I, so I had this experience and I was living in this altered state for months. And um, wow. I mean, the experience started to wane after about a week, two weeks, but then it, it stayed on like a, on a level for a few months and then for a year. And then it, it continued to wane as it started to integrate more and more into my everyday existence, i.e., when it started to become a part of my of the fabric of my everyday existence, um, then it the the experience of novelty started to wane, and therefore the you know this this experience of elation started to wane a little bit. But that's not not in any way, shape, or form negative because it just meant that I was able to experience or, or live life with a newfound understanding of myself and of the world around me, and and I was able to yeah integrate the experience effectively, but. The way it went is that, yeah, I was living in this altered state for for several months. And then as it started to integrate, I started to ask myself, why, why was I not comfortable with speaking about these experiences super openly with everybody, despite it being the most blissful and wonderful experience of my life, like a rebirth? Why could I not discuss this openly with anybody, with just anybody? And why was I not being taught that this was part of, that this could be part of a human experience at school, for instance? Why was this such a novelty to me? Um, When I think by that point, I had started to sort of do some research or look online, you know, try and see if anybody else had had the same experience. And I noticed that there were more accounts of people than I was expecting, you know, people who had had this experience and also in sort of 
religious texts and in uh, in esoteric texts, you see this kind of experience recurring uh, over and over again. So, yeah, I was wondering, you know, like why, if these experiences are more common than we think, why are they still so tabooed? And then I wondered what I could do about that. And for me, the I mean, the answers came from within that I needed to go back to uni and quit my job in the arts to acquire the tools that I needed in order to be able to engage in conversations around the psychology of these experiences. And yeah, in order to investigate them in more depth from a more academic or scientific perspective, because I think that's also really necessary. If we want to bring these experiences to light in today's modern world, we need to sort of use the the language of science. So that's sort of how it came across. It was from a questioning of why we were not engaging in these conversations more and why people felt so reluctant to talk about the experience openly. And yeah, and that led me towards a career in psychology. Extraordinary. There's one possibly very basic question I have, which is how did you relate having come into this experience and the fact that it lasted so long as a state which you had been previously unconnected with or unfamiliar with, and then being in that state, and while it was still novel and kind of fresh, how did you find dealing with money, dealing with people, like with the the kind of the more transactional aspects of everyday human existence? Did that become harder? Like, I'm very curious what, what that felt like. Interestingly, it didn't. And this is why, I mean, you know, because at the time, and especially during the integration phase, so probably around the six month mark of my experience, I started to question like, what is this actually? Um, Is this a manic episode? You know, but actually I wasn't showing any other symptoms of mania, aside from being extremely happy and able to relate to people more and feeling more empathetic Mm -hmm. and feeling more grateful. And in terms of money, I was dealing with money fine. I had a job, a new job, and I was doing really well in it. And I got a a massive promotion, like several weeks into my experience, actually. And so all the sort of things that we tend to think about when we think about mania, like inability to sort of deal with money or with more, let's say, uh, grounded levels of existence, like uh, dealing with people or working. I mean, they were all, I was functioning almost at a higher level than before. I was able to work really well. I was able to save up and I wasn't spending a lot of money. Uh, you know, it was just being normal, basically, in those, in those two aspects. And then I, uh, my social skills increased dramatically since my experience because I was able to relate to people more and so on so yeah wow that's so fascinating and the fact that it lasted so long is just yeah I've not heard of that kind of experience before it's quite exciting at least from I find it very exciting it's like well if this is something that's possible as you say in the human experience then there may be ways in which we can support people to access versions of this yeah because I think one of the things I mean we're going to talk about taboos and depathologizing non-normative mental states but I think there's another aspect as well which is that as part and parcel of the ways in which we approach mental health, we often simply focus on things when they go quote-unquote wrong or when they become difficult to handle. And of course, this is a spectrum. And I think one of the questions is, and I think people are starting to consider this more, what about shifting the focus or broadening the focus towards what mental health looks like, what well-being and flourishing looks like? And obviously that's the theme of this season is how do we envision and empower people to create a flourishing future for all? Yeah. And I think this is absolutely key, even though it might seem like a really unusual thing to explore. So I'd love to ask 
actually about one of the papers that you wrote, which kind of digs into some of this stuff. A mm-hmm. uh, fascinating paper called Spontaneous Spiritual Awakenings, Phenomenology, Altered States, Individual Differences and Wellbeing. I love that title. Um, <laughs> can you tell us some of the key findings that you found really resonant from that paper? Yeah, um, and thank you, by the way. <laughs> so um, what was really interesting in our paper is that we found out that uh, according to people's reports, the experience was predominantly positive in both short and long terms. But what's really interesting about this is that there was an overwhelmingly higher percentage of long-term positive reports compared to short-term positive reports. And what that might mean is that the experience, or what this suggests is that the experience is most typically predominantly positive, even after an initial difficult or challenging experience. Mm. So people often report positive long-term well-being effects, even if the initial experience is a little bit tricky or difficult. So that was really, really interesting. And so what are some of the individual differences that you found showing up? Were there kind of clusters? So for instance, could it be that there were certain people who had certain predispositions towards much more physical experiences and others where it was slightly different? Were there certain patterns that you found? What was really interesting was in our findings was the correlation between heightened temporal lobe lobility activity uh, or reports of heightened temporal lobe lobility activity and the intensity of the spontaneous spiritual awakening experience. And what temporal lobe lobility is, is basically it's the propensity for epileptiform disturbances in the temporal lobes. And the temporal lobes are associated with memory, with language processing and emotions. And so there was a correlation, in other words, between the intensity of the experience and the intensity of the reported temporal lobe lobility. Uh, similarly with trait absorption. So trait absorption is the ability to engross, it's almost like a synonymous for being engrossed in something without effort or control. And that was also heavily correlated with the intensity of the spontaneous spiritual awakening experience. Um, so those were really two really interesting points that came out of the research that uh, Dave and I conducted. Mm. And so if people are listening to this and thinking, oh, I quite fancy a bit of that. How do I kind of cultivate either, you know, qualities within myself or maybe practices that can help um, occasion these experiences more readily? Yeah. What might you suggest? Is there research around what we might be able to do? in order to induce a spontaneous spiritual awakening. Or at least make it more possible. Because, I mean, obviously, if it's spontaneous, it's an emergent thing, but... <laughs> Not really. And also, we need to be really careful with inducing these kinds of experiences because certain things, such as, you know, taking psychedelic drugs um, or uh, getting into a trance state through drumming or through chanting, spiritual contemplative practices might, you know, be conducive to these experiences the manipulation of the ojas or libido energy through celibacy or through sacred sexual intimacy. I mean, there are, there's like, there are a variety of different things that one can do to maybe have a spiritual experience of, of some sort, including an awakening experience perhaps, but we don't really know what, you know, the best kind of route is to get to the awakening experience. And also we want to be very careful with the movement of energy in the body and, um, you know, some people might already have a, you know, they might already be inclined to experiencing these these experiences. So they might not necessarily want to trigger it in an, by an external means. We need to be quite careful because spiritual awakenings are typically really positive, um, but they can also be quite challenging and difficult. 
for some people. So it's just a question of sort of maybe dabbling in a few different practices and seeing what works for you best. And then you might hope for a, a really profound revelation, but it's not a given. And uh, some people practice yoga for 50 years and they won't have a, an awakening experience. And then other for others, it's spontaneous. And then for others, it's through lucid dreaming. Um, we don't really, really know. And, and it's uh, something that definitely needs to be explored in more depth in the future. And so then with the aspect of it, which is perhaps more difficult, because obviously this is something which if you're not taught about, and even if you are taught about, there, there has to be an adjustment to accommodate a new way of experiencing yourself in the world that you hadn't had access before. So it's called awakening for a reason. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that people find most difficult to adjust to? Mm. This newfound sense of self and of the world around them. So they may not really know how to relate to the current societal container in which we find ourselves, particularly in the West, um, a container that is not conducive or accepting typically of these kinds of experiences. So people might find it hard to express themselves authentically after one of these experiences. Mm. Uh, they may not know who to turn to um, or where to find a community with which to discuss the experience openly. And they may find it hard also to deal with their, you know, their work uh, situation or their relationships. Uh, it, I mean, it really depends on the person, but these are some of the main sort of difficulties that people encounter after an experience like this. Mm -hmm. um, and also just, the, you know, the fact that these experiences are tabooed mean that there isn't that much literature or sci scientific literature, but also popular literature mm -hmm. surrounding these experiences online even, and so people who have the experience and for whom the experience might be extremely blissful even, mm. you know, they might start to question their own sanity because they can't find anything on the topic easily online or they might not know which books to turn to. So that in itself can make it quite a challenging road to or, you know, path to, to walk. Mm. It's interesting because in recent years, there has been a general move, at least in, in the West, towards greater acceptance of oneness experience as occasioned by psychedelic substances, which obviously that's taken a while to get to the point that it has because of all the issues in the 60s and 70s when a lot of the exciting and controversial research was being done. Why do you think spontaneous non-dual experiences are still taboo? And how can we start to depathologize them? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think it's just the fact that we haven't really been questioning the narrative, the ongoing narrative, um, you know, predominantly brought forward by the modern psychiatric system, which is that these experiences by default are equate to mental health disorder. When in fact, I do think we need to treat these experiences as standalone experiences, which might intertwine or interlink with certain disorders such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder or just you know psychotic breaks but yeah I think they deserve to be explored as experiences in their own right which carry with them the potential for deep healing and transformation and in fact you know we're even this is almost on a tangent but we in my research and also in the research of a uh, a current colleague of mine Steve Taylor who does really great work around awakening experiences Separately, in our individual researches, we came across individuals who had been suffering from drug and alcohol abuse before their experience, or psychopathologies, you know, or who were extremely depressed, suicidal, anxious, mm. and who had an experience of the sort, an awakening experience. 
and who claim that that experience shifted them away from that kind of addiction, that depression, that anxiety. So even from that perspective, you know, we need to question what these experiences can bring to humanity. Um, and like you said earlier, there's this tendency to, to focus on the negatives of anything that falls outside of the brackets of the norm. Mm. <laughs> and it's, I think it's time that we listen to individuals' experiences and acknowledge that, you know, they can be really positive. And even when they're not positive, they can lead to positive outcomes in the future. And that's why we also need to understand the experiences better so that we can better treat or help people who are undergoing difficult spiritual experiences and awakening experiences so that we know how to validate their experiences while supporting them uh, in a deeper way as well. So, yeah. So what has surprised you most in the research that you've conducted so far? Because obviously this is very rich territory. I'm sure there are probably plenty of surprises, but if you're going to pick one or two things that really stand out for you. Yeah. Well, one actually, the thing that I mentioned earlier on the well-being uh, aspect of it, where more people reported a positive long-term effect compared to a short-term effect. And that indicates perhaps that the experience is still is considered positive even after an initially kind of tricky, challenging, scary experience or even discombobulating experience. Um, so there is hope there. In our research, 98% of all participants reported a positive long-term effect. Uh, and that's, we're talking about 152 participants compared to 90% who reported a positive short-term effect. So there's an 8% increase there. Uh, from short term to long term. So that gives hope to people who are having an initial kind of tricky or confusing experience. Another thing that's, that was really interesting for me to see was, you know, that over half of our participants reported psychological turmoil or trauma being the preempting factor to their experience or a factor that played a big role in their awakening. That's really interesting. So if we're thinking about the narrative arc if there are any similarities between individuals, and I'm sure there's a diversity of experience, that's something which was notable, that trauma was present. Yeah, over half of our participants reported psychological trauma or turmoil as being one of the key factors to, the, to their awakening. Obviously, you can't pinpoint exactly what triggered an awakening, but um, it's still a significant sort of statistic. And also it's something that has been repeated in, in other studies, such as that of Steve Taylor, the psychologist that I mentioned earlier. Um, he recently published a book called Extraordinary Awakenings, and that explores awakenings that are triggered by turmoil or trauma, such as bereavement, uh, imprisonment even. So people who spend time in solitary confinement, mm -hmm. people who have the experience uh, in accidents, and so, you know, so on and so forth. So it's a super interesting thing that deserves more exploration. And it sounds as though it's quite early days on that, but do you have perhaps a, a sense of what it is that it might be that's in that traumatic experience or that sort of range of traumatic experiences that precipitates these sorts of awakening experiences? Is there a hunch that <laughs> you have a sense it's of? It's a really good question. It's, it's not one that I can answer at present, but it's, you know, in a non-scientific uh, in non-scientific terminology, I feel that uh, trauma helps us reassess, even if subconsciously, our sense of identity. So it almost challenges our current state of mind, our state of being. And when we start to challenge, again, even subconsciously, our position in the world or what we're doing here, 
start asking ourselves big questions, perhaps there's an opening within where a new sense of identity can take place. So shattering of the old identity and a growth of the new identity beneath that. Again, this is not scientific, but it's just a... (laughs) I think with a lot of breakthroughs in the scientific inquiry, it starts from something that's noticed or sensed or suspected. And then it's a question of the curiosity and the the approach being possible, a scientific approach being possible to, to apply to a particular hunch one might have. Say, okay, there's something curious here. How do we learn more? How do we unpack it? How do we start to approach the question or the phenomenon in such a way that we shed more light onto it, which sounds like exactly the kind of work that you're engaging in, which is absolutely compelling. So in terms of the kinds of systemic or societal transformations that might be useful for us to consider if we're thinking about making these experiences more discussable and bringing these more to light in the public domain, What are some of the changes that we might need to look at? What are some of the societal blocks that perhaps are not present in indigenous or traditional or Eastern uh, cultures? We're not, I feel like we're not engaging in these conversations enough. We're not engaging in conversations that challenge the classic way of experiencing the world in our present modern, modern day society, particularly in the West. And so I think we need to start having more of these kinds of conversations. So by engaging in these conversations, we're also going to be sparking more scientific interest through which research can be born. And then that will feed into an upward spiral, let's say, um, into better understanding the experiences, demystifying the experience uh, and allowing people to come out of their spiritual closets. And I think all of that in turn will help us progress towards a better, more united more flourished or flourishing world. <laughs> I'm curious as to like the demystification, because on the one hand, I think anything that is not well understood in Western cultures tend to be pushed aside or dismissed or yeah. stigmatised in, in various ways. But at the same time, one of the things that we have very little of that I think we crave, and maybe this is... So well, I think this comes up in all sorts of research around the building of community and of creating new possibilities for ritual where there's been such a loss of that in recent years through secularization and other things. But there is something about the demystification of mystical experiences, yeah. which on the one hand would make these mystical experiences more palatable to Western ears and eyes and minds. And at the same time, I'm really curious about what it might mean to welcome a bit more of the mysterious, the ineffable, and not have to answer everything. Because I think there's this tendency we have to put everything into analytical terms to dissect, which I think is useful and valuable. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if I'm thinking about people like Robin Wall Kimmerer, who is a biologist who talks about seeing with both eyes, so the kind of the Western scientism approach, but then also more embodied indigenous ways of knowing. Yeah, there is a wholeness to that picture that really appeals to me. And I think in the West, it feels like we're hobbling along on one leg and maybe we need the other one. And the other one includes the ineffable, the mysterious, the ritualistic. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that, on balancing our desire to unpack and understand from a scientific perspective and also making space for perhaps a more transcendent experience that evades description? in a scientific way. Yeah, I think both the scientific and the spiritual don't need to be mutually exclusive. And I think it's so important to have a sort of, you know, a practice or an approach to life whereby we feel that the transcendent is a part of us and we can access those altered states whenever we please. 
But I do think that things like science, whilst I don't feel that we'll ever be able to unpack the real reasons why people have mystical and transcendent experiences, uh, at least not from a sort of logical perspective, more from a heartfelt um, perspective, if we are able to unpack these experiences, you know, within the scientific framework, then we'll be better able to point people in the right direction in terms of what people can do can do to facilitate these kinds of experiences or what people might be able to do if they're having a really difficult experience, how to ground them better as well. So I think the science could support the actual experiential aspect of spirituality. So that's what I'd like to see is this sort of supporting mechanism, which is what science, you know, in essence should do in life. So if we're thinking about people who've had these extraordinary experiences um, and the knock-on effect it's had in their life. Are there things that we can learn and apply from their experiences into wider society, whether it's certain behaviours that they then spontaneously engaged in, which gave them a great sense of connection or different ways of thinking, maybe your own experience? What were some of the things that changed that maybe the rest of us could learn from and apply in our lives without having to hope for a spontaneous spiritual awakening? People often report a, se- a heightened sense of gratitude. So having a sort of gratitude practice in one's life might be helpful and conducive to a sense of a greater sense of connection with our surroundings and with other people. And then more practically speaking, you know, things like being out in nature. So again, these experiences tend to bring people to a greater uh, awareness of their environment and of the the natural systems that surround them. So perhaps if you've not had the experience, but you want to feel a bit more connected to um, spirituality in general, to your own inner nature, your own inner self, because essentially that's what spirituality is. It's not outside of us, it's within us. I would say going out in nature, spending time uh, barefoot and connecting with the with the trees and with the plants around you that's gonna that's gonna be helpful and of course you know engaging in things like absorption inducing practices such as dancing or you know trance dancing or partaking in a in a drumming ritual or a, or a mantra chanting circle those can be really really good ways of, of getting you to that state of just feeling that connection at least to some extent with your surroundings, with other human beings and getting you connected in that way. That sounds wonderful. I did actually have the um, the opportunity to go to a drumming. It was an African drumming event with a chap. Actually, his wife is Catalan, but this was in uh, Notting Hill. A friend of mine uh, invited me to go. And it was so much fun. And they were really complex beats. So you had to, it was this really curious experience where you had to have great focus and stay with the beat and learn it. And occasionally you'd come out and then you'd have to come back in. But once you got into the beat and then everyone else had a slightly different beat, so you're kind of adding your individual voice to a collective sound, it was just euphoric. Mm. And I think we don't, again, it, this comes down to kind of social or cultural containers we or practices. We don't have as many of those in Western cultures. Many of the ones that we did have are no longer intact, which is why I think also we're starting to see a resurgence with practices around folklore, mythology. How do we restory our narratives in a way that can give us access to a sense of connection and a sense of oneness with something bigger than ourselves? Because we're so isolated, I think one of the biggest issues in envisioning a more flourishing future is how do you care? How do we care about ourselves as part of something else? And how do we care for other people sufficiently to, in some cases, take a pay cut, you know, make a decision that in the short term maybe 
you don't buy as much fuel as maybe mm. you otherwise would because you want to have the convenience. Whatever it is, this shows up in a... I'm going off on one in terms of examples, but mm. um, if you were going to envision a flourishing future, what would be some of the characteristics of that future that you would like to see? I'd like to see a deeper sense of connection between people, people being able to empathise with each other to you know on a greater level than than is currently seen in our everyday lives being able to witness each other as parts of one entity or one you know one soul one life I, i'd like people to just remember what is going on which is, i mean even if you're not spiritual it's not hard to understand that we're all part of this one planet which is part of the universe. I'd love to see a greater connection between people, um, a greater sense of brotherhood and of sisterhood among people. That would be wonderful. Um, I'd like to say world peace. That's so cliche, but it's so true. And essentially, we all come from this one planet and we don't know where we're going and we don't know where we came from. And I think we need to... And I know it's easy for me to say this out loud because I, I come from a privileged position of not only having had the experience, but also coming from, you know, a background where I'm not struggling in my everyday life, thankfully. And I understand that this is not the case for many people, but it would be great for us to just focus on being here, being here now, um, living in the present and, and, and cultivating this connection with each other because life is so short and, before we know it, it's going to disappear. And actually the truth and the only truth that we know for sure is that we're all here at the same time. And let's acknowledge each other in the street. Let's smile at each other. Let's, um, yeah, let's, let's be here. Let's be present with each other. I think that would really enable a, a, a greater sense of yeah, connection and, and of, of well-being in the world. Mm. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation. I'd love to ask if there is a story, it could be anything like a poem, a myth, a quote, a fairy tale that you live with or you turn to for inspiration. Yeah, I actually, I mean, there are so many. I love, um, I love quotes and poetry and so on. Um, but one that really stands out for me in my life, because I tend to go very deep into thoughts and I remember even in my yoga teacher training course um, one of my teachers told me you don't have to go so deep all the time you can just you know it doesn't have to be so deep all the time take it easy <laughs> um, and it was interesting that a yoga teacher told me that and it really got me thinking and I've always been a fan of Aldous Huxley and there's one quote that I love by him should I read it out yeah go for it okay it's from the island which is one of my favorite books uh, and it goes it's dark because you are trying too hard. Lightly, child, lightly. Learn to do everything lightly. Yes, feel lightly, even though you're feeling deeply. Just lightly let things happen and lightly cope with them. I was so preposterously serious in those days. Lightly, lightly. It's the best advice ever given to me. So throw away your baggage and go forward. There are quicksands all about you sucking at your feet, trying to suck you down into, the, into fear and self-pity and despair. That's why you must walk so lightly, lightly, my darling. Mm. I just, I, oh, I love that quote. Yeah, and beautifully read. So thinking about, oh, we've covered a lot of ground today, thinking about tools or practices that you draw upon in your life, and you did mention yoga, which is exciting. Um, is there a tool or practice that's been invaluable to you, for supporting you, that you'd recommend people explore? 
So I actually came across Kundalini Yoga a year after my experience and um, it just changed my life. You know, I also, I suppose it's also the teacher that I had. He's a, a teacher with a capital T, so to speak. He's wonderful. Um, so humble and, and great. And yeah, but that practice really helped ground me when I needed grounding but it also elevated me in a way that nothing else could elevate me endogenously. So it's, um, yeah, it's a combination of breath work, of chanting, of mudras, so um, finger postures and hand postures, obviously yoga, asanas, so physical postures, um, and eye movements. There's a lot of, uh, you know, different eye kind of uh, movement uh, and eye locks. And then body locks in the body, they're called bandas. So they're pulling different parts of the body or internal organs to generate heat or consolidate or crystallize heat um, and energy in the body. So it's a really holistic and wonderful form of yoga. And I think it's what, what yoga was or used to be more like before it got bastardized, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> um it's just yeah it's it really gets you to an altered state it is fantastic so kundalini yoga is wonderful but also for me just dancing I love dancing um I like ecstatic dance but I also have a practice in uh, it's called sacred earth uh belly dance and it is again I have my teacher with a capital t a different one and she's wonderful and yeah I, I just find that those two practices they just give me what I need whenever I need it. Um, it's wonderful to have that well, that source through which to drink life. Mm. Oh, wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. If people want to learn more about your work, what are the best places to find you? Mm. Um, well, I am on Google Scholar. Um, I'm really bad at technology stuff. I know I'm talking to you, a tech expert. I'm very bad. I don't have a website or anything at the moment, but I hopefully will soon. Um, but you can, if you're interested in learning more or taking part in a future study, um, then you can actually catch me on my email. Uh, so it's my first name and surname at gmail.com. But yeah, Jessica Conne at gmail.com and don't hesitate to contact me if anything resonated with you or if you want clarification on anything it would be a, a pleasure <laughs> thank you for listening to the hive podcast with me natalie nahai if you enjoyed the show please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears and for more information you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.